Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to Nanfu Wong, the director of In the Same Breath. Nanfu describes the film like this. In the Same Breath looks at how governments shaped the narrative during the pandemic and exposes the mistakes that both China and the U.S. made. In the Same Breath premiered at the 2021 Sundance Film Festival. It is Oscar shortlisted and has been named to many end of the year awards lists, including the Film Independent Spirit Awards, the IDA Awards, PGA Awards, and Cinema Eye Honors. Nanfu Wang is a Chinese-born filmmaker who lives in Montclair, New Jersey. In the same breath is her fourth feature. Her debut film, Hooligan Sparrow, premiered at Sundance in 2016 and was Oscar shortlisted. Her second film, I Am Another You, premiered at the South by Southwest Film Festival in 2017. And her third film, One Child Nation, made with Jialing Zhang, won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance 2019 and was Oscar shortlisted. Wong is the recipient of a 2020 MacArthur Fellowship, the so-called MacArthur Genius Grant. For me, this film is a kind of companion piece to One Child Nation which is Nan Fu's film about China's one-child policy, which also tracks closely on government propaganda and how it seeks rather successfully and with tragic consequences to convince people to do what it wants. In the same breath also focuses on Chinese propaganda and really two governments' response to the pandemic, not just China's, but also the United States' response. It was interesting to see within the same breath that about midway through the film, she does turn the camera toward the U.S.'s response and does not really spare any criticism when it comes to not just Donald Trump, but folks like Dr. Fauci, for instance. Nan Fu, I think, is a filmmaker who asks a lot of hard questions in her films, but, and this may be a bit of a cliche about documentary filmmakers, she also shows tremendous empathy for the people she interviews in her films. She's also keenly perceptive about the ways people are being manipulated by their governments and manages to combine that with a refreshing optimism of how we can hold our governments accountable and make them be more responsive and responsible. In the Same Breath is an HBO documentary film and can be watched on HBO Max and wherever you watch HBO. And now my conversation with Nan Fu Wong, the director of In the Same Breath. Nan Fu Wong, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on In the Same Breath. It's a tremendous film. Why do you make documentary films? I came to the United States in 2011 and I wanted to become a journalist so I could report on China. I went to Ohio University as my graduate school when I came. I quickly realized that all my classes were very theoretical and yet I wanted to do something practical. So I asked professors if I could sit in classes, freshmen's classes, sophomores' classes, and just listen to a lot of the practical courses. And one of the classes I sat in was documentary. And it was the first time in my life I saw documentaries because in China, documentary industry now has grown a lot. But when I grew up in a small village, my family didn't have TV until I was about 10 or 11 years old. 
So I really didn't watch a lot of TV or films specifically. There was no movie theaters in the place I grew up. So in my 20s, when I finally went to Shanghai in the big city, I got my first computer, started watching films, but they're all Hollywood films that got widely circulated and distributed in China, no documentaries. So my sense of documentary prior to 2011, when I took that class, was always what I had seen the CCTV channel in China, the state media. And what they called what documentaries are usually about the magnificent Chinese culture, you know, the glorious history and the, the food. And those were called documentaries and they were played on documentary channels on, on the state TV. So I never thought that documentaries could be interesting. That was my idea of it always is the equivalent of propaganda to me. When I sat in the class and I watched some of the documentaries my first, like in my life, I can't even remember the first class. It was a black and white Spanish film filmed in the 1930s. I can't remember the title, but it depicted the hunger of that time and a family of four. It has an emotional arc. So that night after class, I went to I went to sleep and I kept thinking about the people in the film and I felt deeply impacted. And of course, in the subsequent classes and then the next semester, I sat in an American contemporary documentary class and every, that was 2011. So every week they would show some films either that year or a few years before with all different style and to me, it completely opened a new world. I was amazed by this medium that has narrative arc, that has emotional resonation, and it could be so many different approaches that in the class you would see, I, as I, 2011, you would see Michael Moore's film, you would see Alan Bolina's film, you would see Heidi Ewan's film, you would see Aaron Morris's film. I was seeing all of those best filmmakers work and noticing how different all the style was. And to me, I was like, wow, you can do anything. You can tell stories in any way you can. And at that time I felt this was something I wanted to do. I also around that time had skepticism towards print, towards journalism. Even though I had come to the US wanting to become a journalist and was attracted by the freedom of the press here. But I do realize a lot of the times journalism were really fast. And a lot of times was also driven by profit, like what is allowed to be uh, reported at the time for TV station, for example. So it was around that time, 2011, I decided documentary is something I wanted to do. The next step is to figure out how to shoot, how to edit, and how to actually make a film. So in 2012, I graduated from Ohio University, and then I enrolled in NYU's journalism school's news and documentary program. And the, the program is structured where I would take three semesters. First semester, I would learn how to shoot a five minutes video, 10 minutes. And by the end of the second semester, I would have to do a 30 minutes thesis project that the entire third semester would be editing that, that thesis film. And that film became Hooligan Sparrow, my first film. So you were off and running. Hooligan Sparrow is a, a really amazing film for those who have not seen it and should 
try to find it and watch it. It also, I think, informs this film to some extent as well. So let's talk about In the Same Breath. And I want to focus for a bit on the opening scene, in fact. In that opening scene, you show us the New Year's celebration in Wuhan, marking the beginning of 2020. You then cut to President Xi Jinping's New Year's address. And before we go any further, I, I just want to take a moment to ask you about these types of New Year's addresses by the president. I don't <laughs> think that's something that Americans are that familiar with. I know Vladimir Putin does these, but what is the purpose of these annual New Year's addresses? And do people really watch them and, oh, and pay yeah. attention to them? People do watch it because that's what is going to be shown at that time that you don't have choices. Every station is going to broadcast it. So no matter which one you switch to, it's going to be that on it. And it's really interesting because every year the president does that. And every year the speeches are sort of similar. And I remember January 1st of this year, I was joking with my husband, like, should we just watch it to see how exactly the same way it was shot or the language would be the same? The speech is long. And the purpose is usually it's long summary of the achievement of our country last year and the goals and hopes for the new year. It would be like, for example, in, in the same breath, that speech, it would summarize 2020, you know, we've achieved our 100-year goal that we set 100 years ago. We've achieved our 50-year goal in advance, and this is the achievement in all aspects of our military, culture, education, economy. And he would be reading, so there would be like how much growth we had in different sectors of lives. And then the next section would be next year, we're looking forward to this and this. I think it's an opportunity for the government to let the people know that you should trust in this government. And this is what our report is. One of the things that the president mentions in his address is the very prideful communist song, propaganda song, My Motherland and I. And he says, which played throughout the streets. We then see a montage of incredibly well-produced scenes of people performing this song. It obviously is a very patriotic moment. What I find interesting is that if you watch the speech online, it's pretty bland. It's mostly him sitting at a desk with a few cuts of some things. But you have essentially created a music video of this <laughs> song, um, which is really kind of a tour de force on its own. Can you talk about your decision to put his words together with these images of the song? Yeah, I love to talk about it. So when a speech like that is produced and broadcast, even though there is no emotion in there, every level of governments and every school, every organization, government organization, took it to heart. That's not only a speech, that's the guidance, that's the core of what they're going to do. The speeches would then be published and be sent to all level, every part of the country. Students would have to memorize passages of it. And the things that were mentioned in there, in the speech, is taken with great seriousness. So a song that's in the line that the speech, the president says, I want to hear the song sang in um, every street, every corner of the country. And that's what it happened. 
So I really didn't create a music video. What I did is I went to search on social media on the Chinese version of YouTube with the song's title. And then what it comes up is hundreds of thousands of well-produced singing of that song from companies, from elementary school, kindergarten, college, everywhere, airport, flash mobs. So there were like so much of that song being really, they took the words literally, sun on every street, flash mobs on the streets everywhere. And so we have this hundreds of thousands of this version of song. And I really have to commend my husband who co-edited this film with me. He's extremely talented and extremely good with music. So he took a lot of, I think, dozens of the song and edited together, matched the, pe- the peach, the tom, and created it up. I think when I watched his editing of the scene, I was like, oh, wow, it feels like it's produced in one video, but it was like from dozens of source material and they all fit together perfectly. I, I think he definitely has a future as a Chinese propagandist, <laughs> um, your husband. And yes, I did realize you didn't go out and shoot that stuff. <laughs> you, you probably found it online and edited it together. What's remarkable is later that same day, January 1st, 2020, another announcement is broadcast on state TV that eight people were punished for spreading rumors about an unknown pneumonia. And then you say in the narration, it barely registered with people, including me. When people hear an announcement like that on state TV, do they immediately think that the rumors are probably true? No, I think only a very, very small group of very savvy activists who have known how the government functions. If they bothered to go on state TV and have multiple channels say that is a rumor, more likely that is the truth. But only a small group of people would be alerted, would pay attention to that, who are seasoned enough to detect that type of messaging. But most people would take it. They trust the government. They trust the media. There is no reason for them to question when the government punished people or arrested people for spreading rumor or any other kind of crime. So they just all believed it. Even I later talked to a lot of people in Wuhan who in early days prior to that moment, you know, December, November, who, because the rumor before it came on TV, when the government to say that it, it was a rumor, it had already spread people were talking in Wuhan. Kids are sick, classes were canceled, and the parents were panicked. Emergency rooms had discussed and talked about this. So there were on the ground, quote unquote, rumor, people were talking among themselves and being panicking. So even among those, I talked to a lot of them. They say they had the suspicion, they felt something was really wrong. They had kids being pulled out of school. But by the time they heard on January 1st, the government said all of that was rumor. They believed it. They were like, oh, like, don't worry. Like my skepticism or what I thought was wrong. Now the government said it's not. So I should just uh, don't be afraid. At that point, prior to that, they would panic or find masks and then don't go out. But after January 1st, they let the guard down. Like, it's fine. Let's go out. Interesting. It, and it's a very careful choice of words by the government to use that word rumor rather than just call it lies because they weren't lies. By saying rumors, I think they're able to cover themselves and say, in a sense, 
the subtext here is it doesn't matter if these rumors are true or not, we will punish you for spreading them. Yeah, that's a new thing in China that because this quote unquote rumors was spread on the internet, on social media, the evidence of the rumor was social media screenshots that being circulated. The eight people were doctors and they only sent social media, uh, I think equivalent of WhatsApp, which is WeChat in China to their friends and families. And then some people took a screenshot and posted and spread more. So it gets out and that's what the government considered internet comment, internet speech is also part of a rumor. And that's something that in recent years has been tightened and cracked down a lot more. You cannot be safe by even posting something on the internet and there'll be a detention, a crime to it. In the film, we're then introduced to you as a character. You've lived in the U.S. for nine years. And you tell us each year you would return to China at this time to celebrate Chinese New Year with your family. We see you traveling with your two-year-old son to China on January 19th. Four days later, January 23rd, you return to the U.S., leaving your son with your mother back in China. And on the 23rd, when you get off the plane, that's when you hear the announcement about the Wuhan lockdown. In these early days of the pandemic, you're clearly figuring out how to deal with your own life. You have to figure out what to do with your son. But it's also the beginning of your creative process for this documentary. It doesn't feel at this point like a film that you deliberately set out to make when the crisis began. Is this something that happened gradually and then picked up momentum? When did you know you were making a film about this crisis? In the film, there is a scene where I encountered a social media forum where 1,500 people overnight posted their photos, ID pictures, and phone numbers and addresses and their symptoms on the internet, hoping that someone, media, would pick up that story and get them help because they have called hospitals, they've been turned down by the hospitals, they called the hotlines, they called the mayor's hotline, they called everywhere but nobody can take them, nobody can treat them. So a lot of them will die in at home. And there were 1500 and it was still, I saw the post were growing. And it's an act of a desperation for someone who would be posting ID photos and addresses and the phone numbers. I think part of the reason was they wanted to show people this is real, they wanted to get help. It was a moment of, I was shocked and sad and outraged. Prior to that moment, I had not, making a documentary because I had two projects I was working on. I was busy with my life and I also didn't think I could go back to China and I just didn't think that I was going to make a film on it. So that night when I saw that forum, my first instinct was to archive it, save it because oftentimes a post would get deleted seconds after it existed or minutes after. And my concern was this forum would exist an overnight. The next morning I would wake up and it would be gone. So I stayed up all night and I manually, because I didn't know how to, I manually uh, scroll up one page, took a screen, save as PDF, another page, ended up being 500 pages of PDF. And I then merged them into a single document. It was, I think like hundreds of megabytes. That night I wrote to people asking the news organization in the US. 
and I told them I have archived, encountered this out, archived this, and I would be willing to share this to them, hoping they would report the story. And for one or another reason that they all came back that they couldn't write a story on it. And that was the moment I was very clear and determined that I was going to make a film. Did you ever find out why this story didn't get any traction among the media? I don't know. And I can only speculate. And my speculation could be like what they were saying, the manpower or the priority of the newsroom at the time or the amount of the document I sent to them, you still have to verify the information. You need to call, you need to interview, you need to do research. So I think a lot of those takes time and they also may have priority, may need to get approval from their editors. So I don't know, but my next step is me. So me, my producer, Jiaoling Zhang, and the producing team at Model Pictures, Julie Goldman, Colin Hepburn, and Chris Clements. So we came together and we hired few Chinese assistants who have worked One Child Nation. We started calling them 1,500 people one by one. In the end, during the production, we called 500 people and had hours of conversation with each one of them. And some of them eventually became the also in the film that we filmed them. Some of them remained to be audio interviews. And there were a few sequences in the film that's audio montage. That one sequence you hear everybody saying, my mom died, my grandma died, and my father died. And we selected about 20 of those voices but they're out of those 500. From hours of interview of 500 people, we added them down by category. All the people's symptoms, when they first had the symptoms, when they went to the hospital, what the treatment of the hospital was, and when did people die, and what was the government's response. So all of those, we have an AE, and CE, her name is, she spent months just editing those audio, audio interview. And eventually, I mean, like it's 20 seconds of audio montage of that one when people said they all died and another montage of maybe 20 seconds when people are talking about the desperation in quarantine. Those two montages are very powerful testimonies to what happened to people. Information and misinformation are obviously important themes in the film. It seems you were able to find out from a family member who works in a local hospital in your hometown that there were several COVID cases there. And so you personally took immediate action to get your son out of the country. Is this a typical way that many people get accurate if incomplete information from family members with direct knowledge of a situation? I don't know because I don't know other people if they have direct access to the government official. I often wonder actually the same question if a government, high level government, let's say in Wuhan, who had known the information earlier, would he or she then tell the family? But in my case, the initial few days when it was just a Wuhan being in lockdown, the neighboring cities and the places were still open. And the government had told the country that, no worries, we have controlled the virus inside of Wuhan. People outside should not be worried about it. And my family lives 300 miles away. And my concern, immediate concern is, are they safe? Is the virus reaching them? Are there cases spreading already? And I couldn't go back to China to pick up my son. And my mom is there. So 
my husband and I went back and forth a lot of debates as should he go, which he would have to take three flights and two buses to get to a village where he doesn't speak Chinese. So we went through a lot of debate. And、um, in the final moment of making the decision that he's jumping on the flight to go was one of my family members worked in the hospital and another family member worked inside my hometown government. And the hospital relative, he came back home and like very seriously, like closed door, told our family that there are cases in our hospital, but the government said, don't report it. Every day, the government would report zero case, zero case. And so we knew that there were positive cases in that one singular hospital and the cases in the official report is zero. And that just tells me that There could be more, and there could be more withholding of information and deliberate lies, and that's why that moment when we learned, and also it was my family immediately said, "Come back and pick up him because we don't know what's going to happen." Obviously, a few days after we came back, the two countries closed the borders. It became the country lockdown. Let's talk about the timeline of the virus and how you learned that the first infections were actually in December and not January. The footage that I found particularly striking was the closed circuit footage shot from inside the waiting room, I think, of the private medical clinic that is run by a woman named Chen Runjen and her husband. Seeing all these people come into the clinic with symptoms during a four-day period in December. And realizing that these are the classic COVID symptoms was just chilling. And there are other signs in the film. There's other evidence that you point to that December was the starting point, not January. What was the moment for you when you can when you became convinced that this was the case and that you needed to get this story out? So it's really during the making of the film, the piecing together information. It's hard to get access to the. Governments, the deep closed confidential documents, but it's possible to piece together and eventually from all the different channels. And one is the samples that were being sent to test. The very first samples from Wuhan were being sent to test in in the lab in Guangzhou. And on December twenty sixth, it sequenced the COVID nineteen、uh, virus. And the lab technician had posted. In his blog, because he's a technician, so he has a lot of, I think, technical. You know, the excitement you can read in his journal. He wrote a journal every day. It's like being amazed, perplexed by what this virus was. And then when eventually sequenced it, the excitement of finally detecting, and also the fear of what this might become. So that was one set of documents. And another is an academic, like actually, paper written by doctors who have worked inside Wuhan, recording the symptoms of the patients back to December first. And then the private clinic that you mentioned, it is the closest to the seafood market where the government was saying that the virus originated, and it's one minute walk to the seafood market. And that owner of the clinic had. Symptoms January first, and prior to that, from the surveillance footage and what they told us, you can see a ton of patients had the symptoms came in before January first. He went to get treatment because he, even as a clinic owner, couldn't treat himself. Is getting serious. He went to the big hospitals 
he went to four of the hospitals. Each one rejected him. And the four is the same day of January 1st where the government punished the people who spreaded rumors, the doctors who spread rumors. So that was another piece of evidence. And we were just piecing together from all different channels information that we could as a detective might. As a reminder to people, why is it so important to point out December versus January? I think sometimes you people would say, well, um, it's a month difference or something. I think if, if you ask scientists, there are two reasons. One is a pandemic, epidemic, something that is so contagious. Let alone say a month, a, a matter of a week could make a huge difference. And especially how early you control it, make a world of difference. And secondly, just not from the scientific point, but from me or from an ordinary person is what that proves is if the government on January 1st still told the whole country that it's rumor and people who spreaded the rumor should be punished. And they went on January 15th, still say there is no such virus. And January 20th, still say there is no human to human contagion, transmission. The difference is if you had known that they already know it, they already knew it in December or potentially prior, that proved all of the information that they put out to say there's no human to human transmission, there's a rumor, are lies. And they cannot make excuses to say, oh, well, because we didn't know, we are still learning the new information. And that is just not true. One of the most heartbreaking aspects of the pandemic and, and of your film is that the hospitals filled up and people who were infected and desperately in need of hospital care and treatment were not able to get admitted in China. You mentioned the clinic co-owner who was kicked out or not allowed to be admitted to four hospitals. Meanwhile, the government propaganda is kicking in later in this process, saying we're doing a great job. And in your narration, you say, now it's clear to me when the government is telling us where to look, it's also telling us where not to look. What was the moment you realized the Chinese healthcare system is unprepared for this and really incapable of coping with this rapidly expanding crisis? Early January, I think uh, a few days before the lockdown and around the lockdown already, it was the scene is horrifying that people on the streets in Wuhan, the panic, and also the amount of people who died on the streets, died at home, the long lines that people waited in front of the hospital, the desperation, people, that's why also part of the reason why like the 1500 people would post to crying for help on the internet because there's no hospital taking them and waiting for death. The footage that we see, those various scenes, with patients who are standing around with ambulance drivers and trying to get admitted to hospitals. That's all footage that the people you reached out to. Yeah, that's what we filmed. That situation continued. So the scene was, it was heartbreaking for me because first of all, for people to call the ambulance, not everyone get picked up the calls. I've interviewed so many people, they say they stayed on the line, just waiting and waiting for hours and hours, nobody would have picked up the hotline. And the ones that got picked up are considered the lucky ones. When the phone call is picked up, it doesn't mean that they will send an ambulance. 
And so you gotta get extra quote unquote lucky to get an ambulance to send your way and to agree to take you. So this scene shows that a person has an ambulance come and took the patient to the hospital and they arrived in front of the hospital with the two sons of this person and the doctors and nurses came out and they criticized, they blamed the ambulance drivers. It's like, we told you not to send people here anymore. We told you like, we can't have, we don't have any capacity. And so they are facing the decision, either let the patient go into the hospital and wait in the lobby, which the family couldn't go in, it's completely quarantined. So you send this patient to die alone in the lobby in the hospital, or you take this person back home and at least have the comfort of family members. So you see these two sons, the two men, standing by the ambulance, making this impossible decision of taking their parent back home or leave them in the lobby at the hospital, hoping that maybe a bed, maybe some treatment would become available. Yeah, I think that's certainly a place where the government would prefer that you not look. And the fact that you did look is extremely important. At just about the exact midpoint of the film, we see the first clip of Donald Trump, I think, who's talking about having the situation totally under control. We also see Dr. Fauci saying, right now, don't worry about it. Be more concerned about the flu. And on March 8th, less than two weeks before New York City went on complete lockdown, Fauci says, right now, people in the U.S. should not be walking around with masks. Dr. Fauci is, I would say, somewhat of a sacred cow in terms of people not wanting to criticize him because he himself has been subjected to so much unfair criticism by the right wing. But you don't shy away from showing us what he says in February and March, which contains some, frankly, pretty bad advice. Why was it important for you to include these clips? Because I think it's dangerous to idolize any public figure. And I think no matter what the excuse or explanation is, public figures should be responsible for what they said and should be held accountable. And that should not be excused or being considered by political reasons. And it was shocking to me because I think people tend to dismiss what Trump says. But when Fauci was telling people in March, don't wear a mask, it's just like a flu. And I think that those kind of press probably was overlooked or underlooked by people now or fewer people even have seen it or remembered it. But I do remember how influential it was to me because I trusted him. I trusted the CDC. I trusted advice that they put out. And I told myself, I don't need to wear a mask. I told my mom that, hey, here is fine. We don't need to wear masks. And a lot of the healthcare workers trusted it too. And it became disastrous afterwards. Because of that, so many healthcare workers lost their faith in agencies like the CDC. Until today, they still recently, they had the new policy about five-day quarantine and had a huge pushback. And you see the healthcare workers in the film who were punished for raising questions, for questioning, is this the right protocol? Are we doing the right thing? What is the explanation, scientific explanation to this? And those people were silenced as well. To me, I don't think we should shy away by holding them accountable, no matter it's Trump or Fauci. And same thing, I think right now is Biden administration. 
But a healthy democracy, a healthy country should hold the Biden administration accountable. Should question just as closely, scrutinize as closely as they did in the past four years, as they they do now. And not just because it's a different administration, we should ask equally. I think amount of questions of what they are doing and what they are doing, and I think that's our responsibility. It's interesting in terms of the storytelling of the film that there is a point in this part of the film, the second half of the film, where you do interview several healthcare workers in the United States who tried to sound the alarm about COVID and our lack of preparedness, and they also speak about their own trauma and that of their colleagues in relation to the deaths that they have witnessed up close. Why did you decide to put these voices up front and center at this part of the film? Because it struck me. How similar the U.S. and China's response had been, and it was the most shocking revelation to me personally. Because as a Chinese citizen and coming to the U.S., I had a lot of fantasy to this country of freedom and a country that I had dreamed to be, and to only realize in 2020 that it's not as idealistic, it's not as Democratic as free in the way that I had always thought it would be. It was shocking, and of course, seeing the healthcare workers being silenced, just as the healthcare workers being punished in China, is something that I think really alarmed me and surprised me. And the film really became a lot of questioning: what are government's responsibility, how they are responding to it, and how they are shaping their own responses. And this, to me, is a crucial part of it that I had to include. At one point in the film, Lian Payan, Payan, yeah, Payan, whose father died in the hospital because he went in for heart treatment and he became infected with COVID and couldn't get the care he needed and died. Payan then becomes rather outspoken about the government, and at one point he's talking about. Hong Kong, and he says, "I basically got it wrong. I think that the protesters there were in the right, calling for freedom of speech." And he says, "Without freedom of speech, tens of thousands have died in China." But then you later in the film say, "What would he think about the situation in the U.S., where presumably there is freedom of speech, but thousands are dying here as well?" And you alluded to this a minute ago, but. Why do you think two governments operating the levers of power in two very different political systems both found themselves overwhelmed by this pandemic? I think, yeah, that's a question I think drove me to make this film and to something that I was hoping that I could arrive and make sense and find answers through the making of the film. And I have some understanding, and I don't know. I fully like I have all the answers to why, because I'm still perplexed by that. I think the government's priority is in both cases, and I think in a, a lot of other countries as well in the world. And as we have seen now, the first priority is to preserve the power, preserve its image, and those two are connected because. If it has a competent and positive image, then you assume that it can maintain the power for the leaders for that government. So, is their first reaction is to tell people that they've done good, everything is good, and I think 
it's really difficult for leaders to own mistakes. So it's often in both countries that you discover that they don't end up admitting to it until they couldn't cover it up anymore, until it's gone too out of control, too late, that they're forced to change their narrative. But still, they continuously shape in that narrative, even when things change to the worse. Let's talk about the ending of the film, which I love. I don't love what you're showing, but I love the way you crafted the ending. There's the scene where you roll back the footage, goes in reverse, and you imagine an alternate history in which the Chinese government announced the outbreak from the beginning, and the CDC in the United States follows up immediately on that announcement as well. Film is a unique art form in that in the editing room, you are able to roll back like that. I just wanted to hear when you realized the power of being able to reimagine these events and experiment with kind of an alternate reality here. I sometimes felt it was my naive fantasy of what it could have been. I think it came out of a deep frustration at the reality, at the situation and what government's supposed to do and what they have done. Yeah, it's a fantasy world that we all know that uh, it never happened and it it would not. That is my wish. I I see it as a powerless cry in that moment as a filmmaker that has the skill to express that in the film. You can't scream, you can't do anything. And that's my way of conveying some of the deep despair and frustration. Speaking of frustration and despair, the last couple of lines of your film, of the narration, I think the second to last line is, there will be an ending to the pandemic, but I worry that something even more frightening is just beginning. What is that thing that you think is just beginning? The authoritarian tendency, even more so going forward. We have seen a rising and we have seen how China now, I think, most of the countries and experts in the media outside of China had considered the response positive, which more or less bottoms the narrative that it wants the world to take in. And we have seen, despite administration change, a lot of things unchanged, uh, a lot of things all over the world, we've seen things going to a direction that is even more problematic. And I'm also afraid that the misinformation and information that compounded this pandemic, that we don't really have a mechanism, we don't really have the effective measurement to prevent it, to stop it. That's a virus that no one can stop. That's a virus that is spreads as quickly as COVID or even more because it can go from one host and take a hundred more people and spread to hundreds of thousands of more people. That's a much more dangerous virus that we don't have a vaccine for and we can't really easily detect it. And that's why I say something more frightening is down the line in the future. It's interesting how your views of protesters in the United States evolves over the course of the film. First, we see those people who are dismissive of the pandemic and arguing vehemently against the government lockdowns. And you show this to some healthcare workers, and they're very upset by what they're hearing and seeing. But then you say it was tempting to dismiss the protesters as crazy or brainwashed. 
But as I listened to them more carefully, I heard them expressing the same fear of misinformation that I had. We all think of ourselves as capable of separating truth from falsehood, but how can we make that distinction when misinformation comes from people we're supposed to trust? What was the moment when your perception of the protesters began to shift? When I spend a little bit more time with them. <laughs> I don't know how many other people have that experience or would complete with that, which is totally fine. But I think people's tendency is to see people who don't share their political views as the others. And sometimes they hold the moral high ground and think the others are more stupid, they are ignorant or whatever the, the, the adjectives they use or the names that they call. But spending more time with the protesters and also I had spent last year a lot of time in Midwest too uh, for, for a project. And you meet a lot of people who hold different political views from you. And a lot of people are very nice. A lot of people are very smart. A lot of people believe that they were right. A lot of people see those of us, like people who read the New York Times, or people who watch CNN, being brainwashed. They have a lot of sympathy for the others. So if you look at the huge divide of the two camps of people who each are seeing the others as being brainwashed and believing that they know the truth and they are the ones who sees the truth. It's really interesting because I think people's perception are always going to be like that. No one would believe that they are stupid, they are ignorant. And during the reopen protest and seeing the people's reasoning and arguments and listening to what they deeply wanted is a distrust in the authority, is a distrust in the official narrative. It made me think why really nice uh, if you are their parents or their kids or their neighbors, you know how kind and smart they are, have this complete different views. I struggled a lot to try to understand. And then I came to the realization that there's a very important distinction between people who consume narrative and people who control the narrative. And if we don't make that distinction, I think we tend to blame everyone who holds that narrative. But in fact, that those who control the narrative has the power and those who consume the narrative is consumption, is where they consume, where they have exposure to. And I don't think it's fair to blame them. And I also think in this film, and of course a lot of people might disagree, that I feel like humans, people, really have a lot more similarities than differences, whether it's between the two different political camps in the US or between Chinese people and the US people. We really are the same. We want similar things. I think a lot of people would argue what those similar things are, but I think we do all want transparency. We do all want facts. We do all want to be informed and we all want to be treated with respect and dignity. That certainly comes through in the film. You do treat everyone, I think, with respect and dignity. You've made four features. Three of them are set in China. This one is obviously also set in the United States. The films often have a very personal element as well and deal with your relationship with China. How would you describe your current relationship to your, your native China at this point? Love and hate. The stronger you love 
someone or a place, the more that you want it to be better. And I think all my criticism, all my films that were made out of love to China, because I wanted to see it being good. I miss the country. I miss the culture. I miss the food. I miss the friends and the family. And I'm heartbroken and outraged to see a lot of the things that happen in the country and to the people. And my films, I think, are my attempt to maybe, hopefully, that it can do something and make the country a little better. I started the Hogan Sparrow thinking very idealistically something is going to change if I can show it to the world. And now I don't think so. And now I feel if it can reach some people, younger generation, and help them reflect or challenge what they already know, and that's enough. I'm hoping to see a better. I know it sounds so cliche, a better country. And I I have this feeling for the U.S. now too. It's my second home, and it's heartbreaking to see. What's going on in the U.S. for the past few years, and right now, it's worrisome to see where the future of the U.S. would be. I think my film now, in the same breath, criticizes that. And if I make another film about the U.S. and take that approach, it would be coming from the deep love for this place. I think that certainly comes through in the film, and I want to congratulate you about in the same breath. It's an incredible film and one that speaks to not just the first year of the pandemic, but what is around the corner. Congratulations and thank you. Thank you. Do you have a hidden gem, a film that you don't think gets the attention it deserves? Not really a hidden gem, but there was a film. I think 2004 documentary. I think it had attention then, but later when I talked to a lot of people, I think many people didn't hear about it. But it had a huge impact on me. It's called Black Sun and directed by Gary Tan. And the reason that it had an impact on me was that the filmmaker went to film the story, which. Was based on the book a visual artist in New York City who one night was attacked and lost his vision, and it took a while for him to mentally overcome the the loss of his eyesight. And then the visual artist ended up being on a journey, traveling around the world as a blind person, and wrote a book. The British director read the book and felt inspired and took his camera to trace, retrace the visual artist in New York, his footsteps to different countries without him in the film. So he basically followed the journey of the book and filmed everything from the point of view of the person whose visual was compared might have seen. And the film is very lyrical; it's very poetic. You don't ever see the subject himself in the film because it was filmed without him. And the visuals of showing what a blind person might see is extremely, I think, original and interesting and effective. It felt very liberating to me that you can basically make a film on anything. Without the subject or however you interpret it, you use the visual language. 